Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 146. If you're a traditional business and you're wondering how to get into e-commerce or in the online space and what that acquisition process might look like and what the marketplace looks like, or if you're an online company like an Amazon reseller or a SaaS company or digital marketing company or someone that has a digitally native business that has skyrocketed in growth over the handful of the last three to five years, and now you're sitting there and you're going, this is a real business with real cash flow. What should I be doing with it? And what are my exit options? What's this worth? And what does the marketplace look like? This episode absolutely is a must listen to for either of those camps because today I have on the show today, Jason Somerville and Chris Schifferling, and they are from Global Wired Advisors that helps bring investment banking level expertise and processes down to the lower middle market. So that's the couple hundred grand in EBITDA up to two, three million in EBITDA. The reality is, They have amazing experience because Jason came from a world in billion dollar M&A investment banking where he was financially engineering and looking and seeing things that most people in the lower middle market have never even heard of. And after he got done with his career at uh, Bank of America and the likes, he went into working as an entrepreneur for himself. He ended up buying and selling multiple companies over 10 years before he decided to get back into the marketplace and launch his new investment banking firm, Providium Group, which then was focused on the lower middle market, providing really good expertise by optimizing the process so we can give the lower market investment banking experience. But then they spun off and created Global Wired Advisors with Chris Schifferling because he has a digital marketing background and the e-commerce and online space. So they have this sister company that it specifically helps the online businesses get the investment banking experience that is necessary because of how big these companies have got. And the reality is now that they're big enough and they've been around enough, they're attracting financially sophisticated buyers that are willing to pay more. And with their process and the things that we've all learned about investment banking and deal structures, there's a gazillion ways to engineer a deal. And if you have the right parties at the table, there's a lot of different things that could be potentially available. So not only do we cover different things in both spaces, but what's happening in the merging of the two different spaces from online and offline how that's impacting valuations of both sides, strategies that both the online and offline companies are using to make a more sustainable and growth-oriented company for themselves, and then what the different types of buyers are looking like as they're coming out of the woodworks to buy these kinds of companies. So absolutely, totally relevant for pretty much anybody that's got a company and trying to navigate the waters of e-commerce and traditional marketplaces. And then also understanding like what does an investment banking process look like compared to a traditional brokerage approach. So absolutely had a blast with these two guys. And before we kick it into it, if I could just ask a huge favor, one is please just go on to iTunes, give me a rating if you're enjoying this. This is the only way I can keep getting guys like this or gals like Cindy, who was on the show last week. Definitely appreciate it. And the final note is based on what we've heard from a lot of online and do-it-yourself entrepreneurs who are really willing to dive in that we should launch some digital growth and exit planning boot camps that takes kind of a crash course of our five growth and exit planning principles and our process. And over a virtual peer group model, we're launching a 12-week program to give you what you need, all the resources, all the understanding and everything that we've gathered. So that way you can navigate the waters yourself because I think leveling up your education is potentially the hardest hardest thing about this. So over three months, 12, 12 weeks, we're just going to give you everything that we have over virtual settings. So if you're interested in this, reach out to me, Ryan at GEXPcollaborative.com or go to our website, shoot me a message. Otherwise, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Jason and Chris. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Hey guys, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good, how are you, man? Good, good. So this is gonna be a fun episode because uh, so we got Chris and Jason here, and obviously they'll be getting the intro from uh, me on a different note of this. But 
you know, you guys have global or from Global Wired Advisor, you guys have some different unique experiences um, that you are attacking this lower uh, market of the online companies, digital SaaS, e-commerce. I'll let you guys kind of give your overview, but maybe we'll be for the listeners that are not aware of you guys or what you guys do. Why don't you guys each kind of give a little bit of your background and then how you guys came up with the whole concept of Global, global Wired Advisors. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. I'll start with myself, but I'll also be speaking about, you know, just the firm in general. You know, we, um, I, I am a, I like to say I'm a bit of a reformed investment banker, you know, but, but I'm still certainly doing investment banking, except, you know, in a, in a way that I really enjoy it, quite frankly, a lot more these days. But, uh, so I started out as in traditional uh, bulge bracket, large institutional investment banking, did that for uh, about 10 years uh, with both Bank of America, America and a firm, a uh, private hedge fund in Miami called Bayview Asset Management. Uh, then actually left banking for about 10 years and went the entrepreneurial route, uh, started and purchased a number of businesses and ultimately exited those businesses over the course of that 10 years. And then actually met up with uh, a couple partners who actually aren't on this um, podcast today, Chris Bodnar and Joe Hogg, uh, who also have similar backgrounds to me. And we decided we wanted to do something together and, and really create a, a firm that focused on a part of the market that we're going to talk a lot about today. And that's what we call kind of the lower middle market or the lower end of, of the market from an enterprise value perspective. So kind of under $50 million um, with really a focus kind of under $25 million, uh, is where we felt like there was a lot of, uh, of need for really high quality um, advice and service. So we decided to create a firm called Providium that, um, you know, ultimately spawned Global Wired Advisors, uh, which is kind of you know what we're talking about today primarily, uh, which is essentially a, a lower middle market M and A firm that is focused on online, digitally native type uh, type businesses, and and that was you know the three of us, Joe, Chris, Bodnar, and myself. We actually met. The other partner who's here on the podcast today, Mr. Shipperling, and and really felt like he would be a great addition and and really a big part of helping launch and and uh, Global Wired and and helping it be successful. So, Chris, I'll let you get back. So, my brand is more in uh, uh, sales and marketing leadership, and I've worked in various uh, various companies, from small business all the way up to middle market companies. And uh, primarily, actually, in the juvenile juvenile product space, and so that was fun working in juvenile products and toy. But yeah, I've worked uh, in various roles, sales management, all the way up to um, you know trade marketing, to marketing leadership, to general manager. You know, running running a company for you know a, a Spanish based Barcelona based company here for them in North America. So a couple of years ago, I pivoted my 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 career, really my entire career, and moved it towards a focus on digital marketing, Amazon consulting. Um, and so from there, uh, did just various consulting contracts with all size companies, helping them uh, with more than just Amazon, kind of digging in and really helping them. Um, uh, even my roots extended into some sales management with them as well. And uh, yeah, by by happenstance, I met Mr. Mr. Somerville and uh, Mr. Bodnar, Mr. Hogg, and uh, we, um, Kind of shared that, as Jason just mentioned, kind of shared the same same type of vision. Then bring the investment banking lower middle market vision, and me coming to the table with that digital marketing and Amazon, you know, consulting kind of Amazon background, and also manufacturing background too. I spent more time in China than I care today, um, <laughs> and uh, working with factories. So, uh, so yeah, kind of marrying uh, these skill sets together, it's just a really good fit for Global Wired Advisors' um, focus, which is on you know marketplace-based, digitally native, omni-channel businesses. So, well, and that's I'm so excited because you know the listeners have heard me, and I and I'm I've been just constantly as I've been looking out and you know meeting people and interviewing people and like working with our clients is there's this whole what i call like the 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 no man's land of like the couple hundred grand in ebitda all up to the few million in ebitda and that's mm-hmm. i think you know and they're they're different both from the online and the traditional space and i think what we'll, we'll be kind of touching on today is like not only your guys perspective of that i'm curious Jason, is like how you decided to go into that and why what the reasoning was but then also the understand and like kind of your guys' perspective of like the merging of these online and offline businesses because I had interviewed Chris, a good good friend of mine, Chris Yates, and some of the other 
you know, guys from Quiet Light or FB, and like, like those are only, there's only a couple good firms out there that are doing this. And I, I just noticed how green the whole online space was. Is you know, if you really think about how long they've only been able to build these big businesses, and so just kind of curious me if we're going to go back into you know, Jason, what what was the need that you saw? What what geared you towards this? And how did that you know also get impacted by Chris's background? Like what what led you to double down and spawn uh, Global Wired? Well, um, basically, you're right. It, it kind of extends even before Global Wired was was created with Providium. You know, what we found, what we felt like there was a white space on the board where the companies, you know, a few hundred thousand to a few million in EBITDA really just didn't have a lot of high quality uh, intermediaries and M&A firms that they could go to for good advice that was really built by people that you know had these kind of large institutional investment banking backgrounds who really understood you know complex deal structures understood complex financial engineering had seen and done all sorts of different types of transactions across lots of different industries and, and that's really what we felt like we could bring down to and, and help these business owners. You know, these are mostly family-owned businesses, owner-operator type businesses. And, you know, felt like, you know, that, that market really deserved better and felt like we could be the ones to help elevate that uh, from a traditional sense. And then, quite honestly, as we were doing our work at Providium, we started to have more and more opportunities that were focused around online businesses and you know as you said the the kind of the merging of traditional and online more traditional businesses who are expanding into e-commerce and you know looking at that as you know, being really a channel that that really needed focus i mean anybody especially that's in consumer products if you're uh, if if e-commerce is not part of what you do you're obviously well behind the curve already and you should certainly catch up and and i think we all are fairly aware that E-commerce uh, is a growing, you know, growing part of uh, retail in general. It's it's the growing part. Um, so that's where a lot of focus is, you know, for smart companies. And we felt number one, it was something we wanted to really focus on as a firm, but also felt like you couldn't necessarily just treat it the same way you treat everything else. It, it's unique in terms of its structure. It's unique in its risks, it's unique in how you analyze it. You know, it's, it is kind of its own thing. And so we felt like you know, it deserved kind of a, a singular secondary and kind of separate effort, not so much secondary, but a separate effort. So we launched Global Wired and, and we felt like you know, while you know, the partners of the firm already, Joe, Chris had really, really strong investment banking ops you know, backgrounds, what we wanted to do is bolster our capabilities around the technical side of, of e-commerce, digital marketing, that sort of thing. And so that's where Chris became such a great integral part of launching Global Wired because he had a lot of that coming in and could really help us serve our clients really well. Yeah, I was just going to echo that too and say that, you know, this, this, the, the four of us just work tremendously well together in, in that it's the investment banking, it's the ops. And it's the technical side, et cetera. And, and, and even just all of us have been small business owners as well um, at one time or another. And so we also really understand that mentality of being on that other side. Mm -hmm. So obviously that helps. So in, let's go back to Jason, you mentioned like the, the complex deal structure. So like here, here's maybe I'll, I'll kind of tee up and give you some context for where my question is coming from is, and that's what I've learned along my journey over the last five years and going through what, what I went through, but like the, you know, the, the traditional lower market, you know, typical, you know, in the, in the main street, there's buildings involved. So heavy related on SBA, the banks have more collateral than they know what to do with because, you know, they're super friendly with lending. Right. And then you've got the online space and you just like, the, I looked at all these numbers and you go, okay. So now the SBA loans have kind of started to trickle into the e-commerce, right? Where there's some, there's some more progressive banks out there giving some funding to free cash flow because they're starting to understand these businesses a little bit more. But like, you know, what I've noticed is like, you know, you got the main street or the middle lower market and you go, oh, you know, there's the three to five, or if you get a little bit higher, there's the seven multiple and you get like some bigger companies because more collateral, et cetera. Right. But then you go in and I would like, I'd be looking at my clients who are like, you have literally 35 million in revenue and you're doing a couple million in EBITDA, you know, two or 3 million. And it's a lot of work. You got a lot of employees, a lot of stuff, but then you go on to these online companies and you're like, 
they have two employees. They're doing 4 million in revenue and 2 million in EBITDA, <laughs> but yet the multiple is only three. So I think, you know, just kind of put a pin in that we kind of get back to like the value drivers and the risk associated with this stuff. But then kind of going back to the reason for my question is the complex deal structure that you're talking about. I think, you know, when you get into the more, and that's where you and I and Chris were talking about bringing the, you know, the more skilled knowledge of that stuff to the lower market. What do you mean by that? What, what space did you come from? Like, what were the size companies and like the deal structures? And then what do you see as the opportunity of how to like structure some of these things that, you know, typically there has been no intermediary or banking that has allowed that stuff to be possible? Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my background as well as, you know, the other partners in the firm is, you know, multi-billion dollar deals, uh, you know, historically is where we spent a good bit of our careers. So with institutional, you know, Fortune 500 size companies and within those types of transactions, whether they be M&A type deals or debt capital markets deals or equity capital raises or, you know, collateralized, you know, debt obligations, you know, all of those things, we we can kind of run the gamut. So, you know, everything from, let's say, let's say an M&A deal that happens to have five different classes of securities, two classes of preferred, you know, as well as, you know, kind of a role from the equity role from the existing owner and, you know, all of that type of stuff, you know, how to tranche out a deal, how to work out, you know, an option or a warrant structure, you know, all of those types of things, which may be completely Greek to your listeners. I don't know. But, you know, the, that's the kind of thing where you start getting into this financial engineering and structuring where really the reason why it matters is because, number one, it opens up, I would say, it opens up your options as an asset holder. It gives you a lot more to work with. It gives you a lot more possible deals that you can do and be happy with. And then also, usually what it does is it, it gives you access to more value. It gives you access to understanding, well, I can actually tranche up my risk here and work out and end, it, end up with a better overall outcome than if I just go at this plain vanilla. And mm. this, is a, this is the only thing I know how to do is a plain vanilla deal. And so therefore, I'm stuck with one outcome, the end. And so it's about choice, really. And it's about value. So we could get in the weeds for hours on kind of the, the, the differences from a mathematical you know, and legal perspective, but to kind of skip over all that and why should someone really care, those are the really the two, the two main reasons. It's more choice, more value at the end of the day. Well, and I think you hit on a bunch of stuff and like, and that's, you know, what you, you said is kind of, it might be Greek to my listeners, but we, I've covered a handful of podcasts where we were talking about like, like the total cap structure and what that could look like. And like this one guy, what he had done with his PE recap, Mez finance, like all this stuff to get what him, what he wanted. Right. And right. I think that's where like, you know, when we look at this marketplace that we're talking about, like the segment of the market, traditionally all it is is a bank, right? They come in, they give you an SBA loan, which is 10 years of an AM schedule and it suffocates the cash flow and puts a lot of risk on everybody other than being able to, like you said, open that up and like all, you know, for the listeners that aren't familiar, it's just like a jigsaw puzzle. Right. And then what, what I saw guys is that like, you know, that knowledge always stayed in the higher market. Right. So, because like, and I'm curious on your, on your opinion on this is like, you know, I, I talked to this one investment banker, like I, I tried to bring him a deal every now and then, like that was like 1.1, 1.2 EBITDA. And he will not even have a conversation unless it's over 2 million because he's like, dude, I'm worth, it's a million dollars a transaction. I like, that's my deal even though he's brilliant and he's amazing, but like, so there's like the whole, like, what is it that you're trying to accomplish with this? Cause like, you know, the money is not as, is it, it's not as large every transaction. So, you know, and, and that, does that make sense with the financial and engineering? Cause I just think that it's great what it's happening because there are more options and as things get more complicated. Well, I, I think there's sort of a couple of points there. Number one would be, I think that just, from a personality perspective, let's talk about the qualitative side of things. You know, I think that, you know, all of us, you know, really do value and enjoy what we do and working with these smaller companies, working with these, you know, family owned and owner operator businesses. We've done the Fortune 500 boardroom thing and, and it was fine, you know, <laughs> a while and, and that's great. But we've now all moved on, you know, to, to a different place in terms of what we really want qualitatively, you know, mm -hmm. out of, out of what we're doing. And, and I will say, you know, I've, I've done a lot of things in my career, but it's incredibly rewarding, um, 
knowing that you really were a large part in what is most likely the, the most important financial transaction in your clients' lives. Most of our clients will sell their company or sell a company one time, most of them. Mm -hmm. And so that will ultimately be the largest financial thing that ever happens in their lives. And so we take the responsibility very seriously. We're incredibly serious about what we do, even though we have lots of fun. And that, that for us is the really rewarding part of working with companies like this. So and frankly, we, we think the market deserves our level of expertise. We don't think that just because you have, you know, a million and a half of EBITDA, you deserve crap service. Like that doesn't <laughs> right. feel it's right. It's a good company, right? I mean, right. That's, yeah, that's yeah. a lot. I mean, that's still a lot of money. I mean, that's still, <laughs> that still puts you in the top half percent of earners in the country. So, you know, it's not like you're, you know, middle of the road there. But, but quantitatively, to be frank, I mean... Innovation uh, happens, you know, for all sorts of reasons and in all sorts of ways. And I think that, you know, we're, we've built our firm and we're building our firm in, in an innovative way where we can not only provide this level of expertise, but, you know, have it be worth our time and mm-hmm. worth our energy. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, think, I think the key is you can't apply the same structure, the same thinking in terms of how you create your company from, from again, a global wired standpoint as you would to create kind of a traditional middle market investment bank. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work because those companies are structured to where they need to do deals that are 70, 80, 100 million minimum in order for it to be worth their time. Yeah, because they got so, some overhead and all the yeah. costs. And, yeah. so we, just, we structure ourselves so that we can offer the great service, but also you know have each deal be smaller and have that still work for mm-hmm. us. So uh, maybe what would be a good segue, guys, is let's talk about kind of the merging of the two worlds and like how you see the valuations playing out. Like I mentioned, like, you know, the the higher valuations typically because of the lower risk and the bank banking perspective of the of the main street versus what I've even noticed, even in my three years of being exposed to this. Have you watched like some of these people that have gone from like a mutual friend of ours, Chris, that have gone from like zero to 10 million in revenue in four years? And that's a, that's a significant growth rate. We're like that didn't exist three years ago. So I've I've watched this maturity happen of the online businesses, but the multiples aren't there, and the financing mechanisms of the buyers and the sellers aren't there. So, you know, how are these things? How are these uh, worlds merging? And what are the implications of that? And then the follow up just to, to think about it is like the value drivers. So like, what are the things that we can do? But let's talk about like what are the implications of both of those worlds kind of colliding. Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, we're, we're in the middle of the development of a market, um, really. And as, as we talk a lot around here, you know, two, three years ago, let's say, let's say just focus for a moment on e-commerce businesses that are, are kind of Amazon-centric, which there are a lot of those. There wasn't really a robust market for, for those businesses really at all. That's just developed over the last few years. And what you see when markets develop is they go from there being no market to you know, the market pricing risk uh, very conservatively to over time that, that you know, risk pricing model tends to shift as these businesses prove out that they're not fly by night, they're not a flash in the pan, they have sustainable earnings, um, they have opportunities to diversify. And so what's exciting about it is we're in the middle of all that right now. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing things, you know, kind of happen that are, that are a little kind of wild westy uh, in a way, you know, where one deal goes off at some crazy multiple and the next company, which probably is about as good, you know, can't get a bid for half that, you know, oh, yeah. it's, 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 it's interesting how it's working. I think what, what we are seeing though is, and, I think Chris can jump in here in a minute because I think he can provide a lot of good um, color around the kind of the core of how these companies are developing. But the way they're being viewed in the market is, you know, that risk pricing is, is easing. I mean, that's the general trend. So the trend is, okay, all right, you know, you, you, you sell mostly on Amazon. That's not a great thing from a diversification standpoint, but I'm less concerned about that than I was a year and a half. That's right. You know what I mean? The market speaking now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, also, again, even just simply five years ago, which is is a lifetime in, so, the, in the internet world, right? but in the business world is no time. It's a blip. But even just five years ago, even just e-commerce in general, everyone knew, well, that's the trend. But 
I mean, just go back and look at the percentage of, of you know, holiday sales that are e-commerce going back six years ago to last year. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a huge difference. And, and e-commerce is still only 10% of all retail purchases. So I still don't know who all those people are that are actually not going into a store. I, I haven't done that in years. So the market is starting to shift in its thinking and you're just seeing risk pricing change to where you're giving, you know, market participants are giving more value. And at the end of the day, from a financial theory perspective, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, what is that, you know, what is that forward cash flow stream? And what are my risks to that cash flow stream? Mm-hmm. And if the, the more I feel comfortable that I can project it, and the more I feel comfortable that it's sustainable and, and not, you know, vulnerable, the more I'm going to be willing to pay you for it right. today. But I think, Chris, in terms of how these guys are developing and growing yeah. sales is probably something you can add color to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just natural. Again, just repeating what what Jason just said. I mean, it's natural trend that's that's helping an organic trend. Amazon is growing. They're doing more things to make it easy for the consumer to purchase it. They're drawing more people into their fold, right? Doing things like Prime several years ago, and now that was two day. Now we're at one day, and I hit one button, and now of course I've got a package from my doorstep in six hours. I mean, you know, so Amazon is obviously just naturally evolving, and it's uh, it's allowing all of these people in their marketplace. I'd say a couple things though. You know, over the past few years, what you've had is this rapid development of private label brands. And I think, you know, before Amazon was the marketplace for resellers, and now it's becoming the marketplace for private label, you know, and there's also a ton of support around private label now more than ever. And with more support and education, like, you know, your the, the Chris Yates and his his group, and just kind of those big support groups, um, you know, it's it's creating more evolution of revenue through that platform, you know, so... I think you know that's that's definitely happening. I mean, as far as trying to mitigate, call it risk around your cash flow, and trying to drive up um, higher multiples, you know, kind of I guess placing a stake in that private label brand and really making it a brand. You know, a brand shouldn't just live on Amazon. A brand should live everywhere. You know, and the the people who can prove that they've got a brand that either has strong brand quality to it, like strong lifetime value, and is a repeatable purchase, and people are speaking highly of it, and it's becoming more of a household name um, versus just a commodity that you're selling through, you know, another USB cord on uh, yeah, yeah. on on Amazon. And no offense to your listeners, if they sell <laughs> USB cords, we will definitely talk to them, and we can definitely help them. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I think I think that's really helping drive a lot of value up. You know, we had a recent transaction that we did that everything Jason Jason just mentioned it had and in, in, you know it could defend cash flow adamantly, uh, no matter what model you put in front of it, and it had a brand name that was out there, and we got a very healthy multiple, um, much healthier than the average multiple you're seeing. Uh, for e-com businesses, so well, and and there's a couple of threads that I want to pull with this, guys, because like just before I forget them, you guys can hold me accountable to it. <laughs> yeah, um, the well, I think why I'll kind of start with why I think those uh, as I've watched those two places merge, but then some, you know, I want to make sure like who the buyers of these kind of companies are and who you're starting to see as those buyers and how those have changed as they become more um, mature. But like you know, just to kind of go back to my first point is like I like I think about in this kind of Chris, you know feel free to jump in with some insights on the value driver yeah. on these two is like, so look at my, my friend who he owns a re, him and his family own a retail wedding shop here in town. Right. So they started in retail. Well, we all know what happened there, right? Their parents have owned it for 40 years, but then they got into a private label brand that they partnered up with a manufacturer. Right. So then they've got now a manufacturer that they got this private la- private label. Then now they're starting to sell online and he's doubled down and has been doing this e-commerce thing at a, a multi-million dollar company over the last few years. So he won at it from the opposite side, right? So traditional, so retail, manufacturing and wholesale to then online. And then, but so their company has got, you know, a lot of a whole supply chain there, right? And there's a, there's protection of that cash flow. but then you've got the other side where, you know, they just are slinging products on Amazon and how much risk, even though there's huge margins there, how much risk it is. And they're starting to go on, how do I get into manufacturing and wholesaling? So like, are you seeing like, those two kind of like just reverse engineer into the, the ideal outcome together? 
Uh, yes. I mean, yeah. it, the short answer is absolutely. Yes. And I think it's funny. We have a number of deals we've done in the last year that, that are kind of like that, where these are more traditional businesses that expanded into online. And I think in, in almost every case, what happened was eventually the, um, the online business kind of outgrew the traditional business. And, and then it was a matter of deciding, okay, well, how do I structure my company going forward if I think both are still, you know, a strong opportunity? And then, as you say, kind of then branching out into, well, do I completely vertically integrate here and, and get into the manufacturing right. side? Or do right. I just, you know, contract that out? What do I do? And, and I think, yeah, that's a natural progression a lot of, a lot of smart business owners and forward-thinking business owners are taking. And I, I, we're seeing it go that direction more so than the other way, although we have seen it. So where companies started out as digitally native companies, and then they're going to um, kind of more traditional retail routes. We are seeing that a little bit, but the trend is usually more the other direction. Well, um, and on that note, like, I'm curious, guys, because like, it, which makes a lot of sense. And this is where I find like the, the value of people in your spot can bring is pretty, you know, exponential because like you have like take a traditional wholesaler, manufacturer, retailer, something like that. They don't know anything about an Amazon account, right? Or maybe a Google Analytics or where the traffic source is coming from and all this stuff they're going. Yeah. All I know is I look at the bottom line and that makes sense. And I also understand how I buy. But like, so I, I like, I see like, and as some of my keynotes that I've given, it's like, you know, for some of these manuf or some of the traditional business, I'm like, right now is where the multiples are. It might be a good buy for them. You know what I mean? So maybe I'll just flip to, yeah. Two sides of the story, and then you guys can give your your, your two cents on it. Because like it's a good buy for the like. There's a guy in the, in my rodium community. He's rubber stamps man. Like he like literally he's in his 40s, just kicking ass in rubber stamps. And then yeah. he's buying you know e-commerce companies and like just totally 10xing it on that. But then because they're, they're cheap, they're cheap. You know, it's a cheaper way to them to build it yourself and acquire the talent and such. But then if you were the flip side, if you, in, in I'm curious on what you guys would say about this is like. You know, if you got an owner that wants to grow and understand how to like, you know, sustain that to buy it, you know, a traditional business or some, some sort of like way or, and, or Jason, maybe you have ideas on like a deal structure where they roll equity to like both capture that. You know, I, I just find like so much opportunity in that situation, depending on what perspective you got or like what, who, who the, uh, the buyer, the seller is. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. And I think we have seen it in practice, you know, a couple of times. I think, I think you're right as far as the, um, the arbitrage and, you know, kind of was really what you're describing in a certain way. It's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where, and, and we're not, we're not only seeing it from, you know, traditional business owners um, that are expanding and then wanting to use kind of e-commerce as the expansion and, and kind of growing through acquisition rather than growing organically. We're seeing that, but, you know, we're also seeing guys that are pure e-commerce that, that have kind of taken the same approach and mm -hmm. said, Hey, well, you know, I can buy up, a great asset because I think they're still mispriced. The market is still mispricing a lot of those. And then I can not only grow the business, but in conjunction with what I'm already doing, I, I do the leapfrog from a multiple standpoint. Right. And I think, you know, you had, one thing you had mentioned before, which I don't think I answered was the types of buyers in the marketplace. Um, you know, what you're really seeing, and this is kind of a bit of a fast forward uh, to, to the, to the end, but the larger the companies are from a cash flow perspective, the better the multiple you're going to get. So, you know, and a lot of the, the tiering there is a little bit fuzzy, but in essence, you've kind of got under half a million of EBITDAs being a tier, kind of half a million to maybe a little over a million being a tier, and then kind of a little over a million to say two and a half being a tier, mm -hmm. and then above two and a half kind of being its own tier. And, and as you jump tiers, typically you see average multiples increasing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times what you can do is you can have an arbitrage trade where you're literally acquiring a company at, you know, a multiple that the moment you do, it puts your overall company into a larger tier. So you have an instant arbitrage on day one. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so we're seeing that strategy play out a lot. And, and also to the point where you've even got some aggregators is what we call them that uh, have started to come into the marketplace right. and really just be a collector, a collector of these smaller uh, e-com companies uh, in order to just bring them all together with an ultimate takeout to be determined, mm -hmm. whether that's public market, larger private equity, uh, strategic, whatever. Right. Um, you're seeing a lot of that 
as well. So I don't know if I directly answered. Yeah, what you did. Uh, and and then may, maybe on that note, as we look at the ops and like the different types of these kind of companies, Chris, like what are things that people are doing to like to not only you know taking the tiers they're collecting that stuff, and maybe what are the operational maturity that like degrees that they have to have to be doing this? So you know, like what are the things that they're doing? The best practices to you know not only just have the the pure size like Jason was talking about, but like. You know, I mean, the person that was in their basement that I was all of a sudden doing a couple million, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like taking it from that to like a real business that, you know, maybe that kind of gets into the due diligence and what the buyers are looking for and how the, the value is being perceived. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I hope I understand it. So I hope I, under, I answer your question the right way. But I mean, I would say it kind of goes back as far as operational efficiencies, what they're doing. You know, I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying before, and this is all to drive multiple up, right? So, I mean, you know, they're they're not just focused in on one medium. You know, they're looking to immediately diversify. You know, from a from a sales standpoint, right? You know, are are they? What's the opportunity, right? That's kind of where you have to start. <laughs> Can you go back into the sales side to interrupt? But I want to like maybe just kind of peel that apart. So, like, you know, and yeah. and I think in the traditional space, people are familiar with like largest customers, X percent, or like. <laughs> You don't have a repeatable sales process, but what, is, what does that mean in the online space? And then what does that mean to diversify like someone's uh, sales? Well, there's, I mean, you know, there's still a lot of channels that you can go into in the online space that, uh, you know, folks are, are starting to pay more attention to. And it's outside of just the, the typical, you know, eBay, uh, Walmart, or even Jet, et cetera. You know, Wayfair is coming up as a real player. Um, as far as marketplace, um, Sears, God rest their soul, at one point was a marketplace. Target is now creating a marketplace. You know, Target's a real player um, where you can go and, and truly become, I'd say, uh, create some good diversification because you've got the opportunity to maybe sell in their stores, which, hey, let's not, <laughs> let's not neglect the fact that yeah, you yeah. sell 1,400 stores, right? Okay. Plus, you know, you could go into a walmart.com and catch the attention of a buyer Let's not neglect the fact that Walmart still has 3,200 stores, you know, or 33, I think, something like that. You know, there's a ton of international play as well. You know, there's a lot of, again, you know, this is kind of speaking very high level, but just from a sales standpoint, identifying distributors overseas that can instantly, accretively create more growth for you, you know, almost like a day one, right? And identifying those opportunities. So, you know, I think it comes back again to carving out real opportunity. Do you have a product that can actually go and, and, and sustain itself? And let's not neglect the direct-to-consumer approach as well, right? You know, you have an asset called your website. You know, one of our clients that we worked with, and in, in, in one of the most phenomenal ways that we've ever seen, completely inverted their sales off of Amazon to their own website. And we're talking, it was 90-10? It was 80-20. It was 80-20, and then they inverted 80-20. So it's 80% Amazon, 20% their own website. And they created really good digital marketing tactics to completely flip-flop them increased their, you know, increased cash flow, increased profit margins exponentially. Um, and on top of that, also from a marketplace standpoint, became very attractive to a well, lot of different potential counterparties. Well, I think that is an absolute, like, so a couple of those, like, there's so many things. <laughs> so, yeah. so, we can like, talk for days, man. <laughs> no, I know. So like, you know, so I think what happens is like, you know, this is the, the, the challenge that so many first time entrepreneurs that are not familiar yeah. with the world. They, they, they struggle I, and I, we used to do it too, is the annual expense, you know, you're trying to optimize for the annual taxes or like, you know, I don't want to invest in this or that or the other thing, but understanding how that's going to come out the back end when you increase the multiple of the value. So like maybe kind of, you don't have to go like, you know, step-by-step, step, but like, you know, maybe like, what did they invest in to do that? And then how did they see that on the, on the opposite side when they ended up selling the business? Well, the investment, I mean, in, in this particular case, um, the investment was was obviously internal. They had someone within the business who created the strategy and, and, act, and implemented the strategy as well. And Jason was pretty intimate, so fill in any blanks you know, that I'm missing out here. But yeah, they, they effectively created a really good way to, because again, you know, getting a little bit into the weeds, but there are, there's plenty of data that shows you people are going to search for your product off Amazon to see if they can get a better deal. Mm -hmm. It's just it, innately we're, we're there. That's our nature, right? Mm -hmm. We want to get the best price. Most of us do. Some people don't. They just add it to cart and they hit one button and it comes to their house. And they don't really care. So knowing that data, they exploited that data and they were able to drive people off Amazon. And now because of a lot of antitrust stuff that's coming up with Amazon over in Europe, et cetera, 
Amazon cannot enforce certain pricing rules that they were trying to enforce before, where they'll you know call it the playing field is even. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't enforce that, and so there's a real strategy behind that uh, where you can where you can start driving your traffic. There's other sources as well. Again, it's getting into the weeds. I mean, I would say for for us, I will say this and just plug this for a second. You know, for us and just like you too, I mean, we've vetted out a lot of really good resources for our clients. Uh, we have one in particular that their sweet spot is helping brands diversify off off. We'll call it just off marketplace mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and doing what they can to own that consumer data and drive more sales through their own platform. Well, and I think in, in that that's pretty much what I was looking for. So I appreciate the the explanation, but I also think like one of the things that to expand on my my point is that like it's worth the effort and the expense, no matter what it is going to be. Right. Because you're going to get it when you eventually harvest it. Super stupid example, but like, you know, for years and years, we tried to like cut, like, you know, cause we were dealing with cash issues and it's like, Oh, let's, let's get the $80,000 CFO in quotes. Right. Not a CFO. Right. We needed to spend the 150 grand. You know what I mean? And then we got the real CFO and then we had clean books and then we got the money when we harvested the value. It's it's painful these kind of things and it's or extra work when you're making a bunch of money not doing a whole lot of stuff. So I think it's just my point is it's worth understanding these things because it's definitely going to be uh, the payback is huge. that's right. And and you know be be wise in what you choose. I mean I think your example is perfect. You get what you pay for. You know if you want to go the cheap route and try and shortcut things, you know in some cases you're going to end up just turning money and not have a lot of good results. So yeah, you get what you pay for. And, uh, you know, you definitely want to bet those things out before you, uh, before you, uh, you, before you invest. So, so well, and I'll, and I'll, one, I'll just to close the loop on that, to be specific, I think, you know, this company probably without exaggeration, their ultimate exit was, was two X because they were able to do that. Yeah, so they, that's they right. got twice yeah. of what, what they would have gotten if they would have gone to market being 80 per, still 80% Amazon. That's correct. So then let's, let's, let's take that thread then Jason, like, and why, and what are the different, like, so maybe this kind of gets into your guys' process and maybe I'll tee it up to kind of give you a couple of different examples to say, but like, you know, the, the traditional approach of a listing versus like, you know, you guys, you were rambling off different strategies of not only somehow someone can diversify, but the way that I look at this stuff, guys, is like, that's also the investment banking role of like, if you didn't want to find a distributor over in Europe or something like that, that's a potential buyer. Right. So there's all these different jigsaw puzzles that you can put together. And so, you know, how, like, what is the process that someone looks through? And so why did that buyer pay that? And so what, what was it about that situation that that buyer was like, you know what, this is less risky. I'm willing to pay more. And what, how did that fit into the puzzle of what they were trying to accomplish? If that kind of makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think you had a couple factors there. One is I think that there's always going to be, uh, or at least the market's willing to pay you a premium for owning your customer, right? So you own your customer, um, you have that customer data, and you can use that data uh, to your advantage as you go forward and grow the business. Mm-hmm. So really, again, what, what the market wants to pay for is growth and growth opportunity. And, and what, is that, what, can, you know, what can that chart look like? So In this particular case, there was a lot of positive attributes for the company to begin with. So they had a very strong brand. By rotating, you know, they ended up owning their customer. They, by owning their customer, that allowed them to have a much deeper, easier, I would say, product roadmap rollout uh, plan. Yeah. Because you now have a brand loyal customer who you can market to right off the bat. And they're likely to be purchasers of your next five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, products. And then they also were able to, you know, in- grow their business. So put them into a, a tier where, you know, you're going to have some more sophisticated buyers and buyers who are looking for larger opportunities and can see the big picture a little bit clearer. You know, I, I think that that's one point that I will make that, um, you know, for sm- we'll call it the smaller end of, the, of this market, under half a million dollars of EBITDA, you still, the majority of your buyers are still individuals. Um, and quite frankly, they're still individuals that are not terribly sophisticated in their own right. And so, you know, you know it, it's a little harder um, to you know, execute complex financial engineering and complex transactions when neither transaction participant, participant can even understand what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you've got those challenges. Um, 
But as you get up uh, a little bit larger than that, when you have, you know, and that's been one shift in the marketplace, bigger, more sophisticated buyers, whether they're strategic or private equity or, or otherwise, are now willing to participate in kind of more pure online plays. They're used to this kind of stuff and they're used to paying more value for things. It's, it's interesting. That market is fairly binary. Either they really like something and they're willing to pay you, you know, good value for it, or they don't like it. And there's not a price where they care. Right. And so, you know, a lot of people don't understand that either, but so let's assume they like it. Well, that gives you real opportunity there from a seller standpoint to exploit. Okay. Well, my, the, the buyers that are looking at my business are going to see value and see price a certain way and see structure a certain way. And so I can take advantage of that, you know, ultimately. So, but they, those types of, the, the more, whether you're an individual or an institution, the more sophisticated you are, the more you're going to really understand and value these kinds of attributes. Do you own your customer? Do you have a brand? Do you have a really clear growth plan? Or can you articulate a growth plan that maybe you can't pull off because maybe you don't have the capital or you don't think you have the expertise, right. but you can paint me a picture of how I can pull it off because mm-hmm. I have the capital and I have mm-hmm. the expertise. That's right. You know, they're going to pay you for that. And so that's where you start seeing companies really differentiate themselves in a marketplace where they're looking you know, to build something that has more value and ultimately get paid for that. That's right. Well, and it's, it's super interesting. I totally agree with everything you're saying too. And like, maybe there's a couple of things I want to touch on. One is the sophistication, not only in the operational growth strategy and laying that out and tracking it, measuring and all that stuff, but also the deal structure. And I think, you know, I'm curious in what you guys have seen. Cause I like, there's a, a dear friend of ours that like, you know, he's like, he was, he's helps in this space where all of a sudden he's like, all of a sudden I'm sitting next to Deloitte. Right. So you got the, these people that have potentially didn't really, they had like hobby businesses that blew up. And because they're that attractive to now these sophisticated financial buyers that understand growth and financial engineering, there's a huge upside, but there's a huge risk too. Because like the way that I, I mean, honestly, as I was kind of teeing you guys up before we hit record is like, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know, right. I didn't know what different, you know, recap structures were like, or different kind of financing structures or like the, the all those things where you're, you know, these owners, they're, they're used to playing checkers and they are going to sit across the table from someone that is playing 3d chess, three boards, seven moves in advance. So you don't even know what you don't know. And that's where I think, you know, having the the bridge between the two is unbelievably important from the ops and the deal structure. And I, I mean, I don't know what you're seeing as, you know, from the people that you're starting to engage with, where can they start to put those stepping stones in place to like understand, to, to make it easier and to, the, honestly, the value what you guys are doing, because if not, they don't even know how to value it because it's just like pixie dust otherwise. Right. Well, I, I think, I mean, like a lot of things, becoming educated is the linchpin, you know, to, yeah. to getting to where you want to be. And I would say that you're right there. I would, one of the things that it's part of, of having a developing young market is there's a real lack of education in the marketplace. Over time, as financial markets throughout the course of history have developed, that tends to correct itself because enough people, you know, get the short end of the stick and, and, and they're in business long enough and, and eventually it, they become aware of, all right, well, I probably need to educate myself a, a little bit more here. And so that's really, you know, becoming educated is kind of the first and foremost Thing I think you want to do. And, and how do you do that? Well, I mean, you can engage an intermediary like ourselves. You can work with a party like you um, as well, who understands, you know, Ryan, how to, uh, how to navigate the waters. I think that, you know, a lot of these online kind of only businesses were started without really the full understanding of what it could ultimately be. Yeah. And I think that is definitely changing. People are now understanding, hey, wait, I've I've created something. Hey, wait, there's something here. <laughs> hey, wait, that a lot. I've created something that not only, you know, is a nice little, you know, cash flow stream into my bank account, which is always cool, especially if it's not, you know, the hardest job in the world. But I think I've actually created a, a sellable business here. Now, let me make sure I really do maximize it yeah. when the time comes. And so I think the desire to be educated is increasing. Yes. Uh, there's still a huge void there. 
And unfortunately, if you if you work with the wrong advisors and work with the wrong you know people, you know you're not going to have you know the right kind of we'll call it advantages when it comes time to get to the deal table. You're going to get taken to the cleaners, and that's just how it's going to work. So you know, there's a little bit of live and learn there for for a lot of people, unfortunately. Right. You but some like inside Jason on like kind of the process of like the. the for people that are listening, they're either experienced or I think I've covered a lot on the show over the years, but like, you know, the difference between investment banking and the controlled auction process and putting a deal together versus quote unquote, putting a deal together and helping with the bank financing and do a handoff of another lifestyle buyer. Like in, mm-hmm. and like the, 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 like the actual process and how those different, uh, how those differ from each other, because I think the, the listeners should be asking anybody, what is the process? What is the experience going to be a look? What is, what's it going to look like? Well, kind of taking something that I would say is is really the the higher level M and A type process, which is you know, really the way that we we tend to run most of our transactions. Um, you start out by gaining a, a really deep understanding of business um, and going through a bit of a we'll call it um, dress rehearsal to try and make sure all all of the clients you know, ducks are in a row prior to going out and marketing the company. So it starts out with a a really a full intimate understanding of the company where, where, for example, we become experts on it. And then also if there's anything we identify in that process is, hey, like, let's take care of this thing or this thing or this thing, you know, prior to us going out and showcasing the company, because we think that whether it's an investment in time or maybe an investment of, of money, that it's going to be well worth it on you know on the back end. That's it's right. going to be you're going to get paid for this additional investment. So you know that's part of it. It's, that's the very beginning. Understanding the business, getting it to the right place so that it it can be taken to market and and you know have a maximum outcome. Then there's the idea of of figuring out the go forward plan. That's kind of the next big piece. So. We develop pro formas for all our deals. So we develop cash flow projections, full projections on the company and product roadmaps. And we sit down with the, the owners, the sellers, and we really walk them through that. And quite honestly, there are a lot of times these, these men and women have not even thought through that yet. That's right. And so we kind of force that issue and say, all right, well, look, you know, what do you think the next five products are and why? And what are the right channels and what's that going to look like? And how many more employees do we need if you're going to go from 5 million to 12 million? Mm-hmm. You know, and you think through all of that so you can lay out and paint a picture of the future for, uh, for the marketplace. And so once you've kind of done all that, um, it's really about kind of trying to identify the universe of, of good fit for, for the opportunity. So, you know, and that's a process of putting together a group, as you say, like kind of a controlled auction process where, uh, you'll identify those buyers and, and kind of have those buyers really start to dig into the deal, you know, to the ultimate end of creating a, a bidding war effectively in that controlled auction process. But identifying those appropriate parties comes down to, you know, what is the, what's the vertical the company's in now? What's the company structure? How big is it? You know, all those things. Well, that matches up with this type of buyer set really well or this type of buyer set. So really, Producing that kind of marketing plan where you're segmenting the market and saying, listen, these kind of buyers really fit for what you do. And that's why we think they're going to care the most and ultimately pay you the most for this company. That's kind of, you know, that piece of it is creating that. And then, and then you're going out and, and again, from our standpoint, we're, we're educating those buyers. We're working with those buyers. Um, ultimately, after a long week, we kind of shield our, our sellers, if you will. Um, most through most of the process, you know, we're, we're really doing the, the discussing, the explaining, the answering of the questions, that sort of thing up until really the last, we'll call it small group is, is, has been determined. And then the sellers and the management maybe get, get involved. What I would find so interesting, Jason is like, and we just, even a couple of the last points that you're making is like, okay, so like someone like, and you actually touched on part of it earlier where you talk about like the, I think the traditional online space and even the brokerage space underneath the five, 10 million in main street, it's all the same thing where it gets slapped on a website, which, you know, and I, I actually do believe that the online space provides 10 X the value 
than the main street brokers out there for the most part. You know, there again for anybody that's listening, it's the gen, it's the it's the it's the ratio, right? There's five percent of the people that are amazing, no matter what profession they're in. But then there's the general, the general, yeah. um, <laughs> the, the trends. But like just overall, no matter what, the process is just different, and you're going to be attracting more of the lifestyle buyers that are going to either have cash or an SBA loan, right? So that's the creativity. That's the vanilla you're right. talking, right? right? Versus saying, okay, like your product should really have a whole uh, manufacturing or a wholesale part to it. Maybe we should go find those people, right? Mm-hmm. And then so like, then you can structure all those different things, different, you know, classes of shares, all those different things, like of the engineering of the deal, to understand the financing. So it's the financing. And because, I, I mean, I was, uh, I had some partners where they were uh, potentially going to take a run at a company and acquiring a company recently. And like the broker didn't even know. He's like, well, you need X amount of capital. And I was just like, I like listed out this email of all the different ways I could finance and put the deal together. And I can guarantee you the person that was on the other end who was marketing this really good business for us uh, for a buyer had no idea what I was talking about. So that yeah. not only was like, th- yes, it was there, but I'm like, they were by accident, you know, stonewalling a potential buyer because they didn't understand the financing structure. That's just yeah. like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good example of, of, Again, you kind of have a pretty big difference in why why we wanted to to enter the market both traditionally and from an online perspective because we we actually you know, we've all dealt with it ourselves um, as buyers uh, of businesses. You know, again, we all of us have bought businesses before prior to you know what we do now with Providium and, and Global, and um, we've dealt with these kinds of people. And again, I'm. I think that the clear distinction is the the brokers of the world, most of whom have never had any real investment banking experience, they they kind of plain vanilla everything. They usually sell companies, frankly, well below what they're really worth uh, just because they can get a quick trade. So you see things being marketed basically at the same multiple all the time, no matter what it is. You see that and it's just sort of, that's the state of the market now. And, and unfortunately, that's the majority of what happens in, that, in this kind of world, whether it's online or traditional. And, um, and really, you know, all we're doing is taking a process that has historically been reserved for very large companies and bringing it you know, down to, to this marketplace. Right. We're not sitting here saying we're inventing the M&A <laughs> process. <laughs> we're, not, you know, we're not that arrogant. You know, we're just taking... Uh, the, the process as we think it should run and, right. and, and making it available That's to right. you know these these smaller companies and and these uh, e-commerce businesses. So if you're and maybe this uh, let's see up Chris is as we're kind of wrapping up here is like what if you're either a buyer or a, a, either a potential buyer or a seller of e-commerce what is the way to start getting versed into so maybe take it from the the seller's perspective first what are things that I should be doing or the listener should be doing now. If I'm thinking, you know, 12, 24 months out, like very like brass tacks, like this, like can move the needle huge. And then obviously yeah. having some, uh, you know, conversations with people like yourself, but like very tactical things that there will definitely see, you know, um, some definite movement. Yeah. We talk about that a lot around here. I mean, from a, I'd say from more of a financial perspective, I'll let Jason answer that, you know, kind of cleaning up your books and all that kind of good stuff, you know kind of normal housekeeping things that gets neglected, right? Um, you know, from an op standpoint, I would say it's just, you know, have a checkup, right? Go go see the, the retail doctor and figure out what do I need to really do here to start moving the needle. And, and again, you know, I can't emphasize enough, having all your eggs in one basket, this is very, you know, elementary, but having your eggs in one basket is never really a great thing from a, from a maximize, for maximizing your value and the value that you could have, you know? If you're really bad at driving traffic to your website, you know, hire a great digital marketing firm. If you're really bad at, at branding, find a great brand marketer. You know, social media and influencing is is you know not it's it's not just a buzzword. It's something that people are actively doing now, and it's something that if you're building a brand, you should be actively doing it yourself. Find ways to collect more consumer data. You know, email marketing is not dead. <laughs> it's just not. It's very alive. And, you know, collecting that consumer data starting now is very, very important. What I've found with a lot of sellers, and I'll say this, and that's, and I also caveat and say every case is very different, as you know. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, what I find with a lot of sellers is that they are so, I guess the, the allure of how much revenue is being driven by one channel tends to make them neglect and forget that there are a lot of other things that they could be doing. And you know what we find with Amazon businesses, frankly speaking, they're only spending a few hours a week or 10 hours or 15 hours a week. I mean, there's plenty of time for them to start going, I think I could be doing more here. And I think I could be doing more to diversify myself, you know? So, you know, I, I, I'll, throw up, I'll throw up our hand and say, we do have resources that we can help, you know, as we're, as we're engaging with a client, you know, we just like, just like you and you build your advisor, advisory team, and you've, got a, you've got incredible resources for your clients. We have the same thing on our end in terms of, you know, what's needed to really help them invest in the right things to grow their business. And to grow it in a way that, you know, like we just talked about this, this in this podcast, they're going to get that back on the, on the, on the exit. Awesome guys. Um, how about, uh, Jason, anything from like, you know, if actionable from a seller's perspective on like clean, I mean, anything from cleaning the books or like any good resources, even for people to get, pick up and learn, like, I mean, what you and I, like, you know, the, the exposure that we've had of the crazy mechanics of the stuff, they don't have to be an expert. Right. But I think, you know, what I always say is like, know enough to have at least a little bit of a conceptual understanding. So that way you can have a, a conversation with someone, anything actionable that you'd uh, leave the listeners with? Well, what I'll say too, from a financial standpoint, go ahead and, and find a good CPA yes. um, and keep books that are very clean. Um, it, it will absolutely pay off. You don't have to pay a CPA that much, you know, to do what I would do is I would, I would hire one and, and we know a number of them that are familiar with e-com and we can always refer people, but honestly, any, any decent CPA can do this. this the, the books for these companies are not complex. I mean, you, know, you don't need um, you know, a KPMG to, to do your P&L. It, it's no. fine. So, <laughs> but what I would do, honestly, I would, have, I would have a CPA on a monthly basis, you know, basically tie out your books and have monthly P&Ls that are, that are you know, accurate. Mm-hmm. You can read. So, <laughs> not tied into your personal PayPal account, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Separate. Separate bank accounts, you know, if you haven't incorporated, please do, you know, have an <laughs> you know, do all those things. And I, again, I'm sort of skipping over that, but it's, it's true. I mean, yeah. we do, we have had clients that, you know, really have run their business as a sole proprietor and they, they don't have an LLC or an S corp or anything. Yep. I mean, it complicates things. I mean, and, and, you know, like anything else in life, right. It's like, if, if it takes a small amount of effort to, to get a large amount of positive outcome, then, it, it makes sense. Um, and I think that really the, the ultimate reward, you know, for example, if you're able to grow your business to a point where instead of doing 200,000 of cash flow, you're doing 500,000 of cash flow or 500,000, you can grow to a million or you have a, an active social media campaign, you know, and, and you have a brand and you've kind of done these things you're talking about many multiples of your EBITDA is what you're going to realize on, on the back end. Yep, so, that's right. you know, these are things that, especially, especially as this market develops, what we're already seeing is a true bifurcation between companies that are really getting it and yep. who are really, you know, have their act together and companies that don't. That's right. And the ones that don't are kind of getting left at the altar, quite honestly. Yep. And the ones that do, are, are really being paid more and more for their value. So the, the reward for that work is getting better and better all the time. So, um, you know, I That's think that, then. <laughs> yeah. So I, I say, listen, keep your books really clean, you know, really try and structure your business in, in a way that, that a buyer could, um, could fairly easily take it over, whether that's a large institution or, or an individual. Yeah. I mean, I think we say it around here a lot, kind of begin with the end in mind. And it's not a, it's not something that, that hasn't been said before, but start to just actually legitimately think about whenever you're making strategic plans in the company, make those plans thinking about what the impact is on your exit. If you just simply do that, like that's just a simple mindset change, right? That if you do that, a lot of this will take care of itself. And when the time comes to get you, you, you call us and say, Hey, I'd really like to exit this company in three, six, nine months. 
Well, we're sitting there saying, wow, you're already in really good shape here. Let's do a couple things and then we'll get you, get you cranked and, and, and get you something that, that makes, you know, makes you pretty happy. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. No, very well said guys. What's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you guys? Uh, I'd say website, you know, we've got, um, it's, uh, www.globalwiredadvisors.com. We have a valuation tool. Uh, we put a lot of thought and um, formula uh, and market data into that valuation tool. So, uh, you know, it, uh, it, takes, it takes into account a lot of different data points. We're constantly tweaking it, making sure that it's reflective of what the market um, is really showing. So they can go through that process. That's complimentary, uh, kicks back evaluation uh, to whoever fills it out. And of course, you know, we will we'll follow up with them from there. And we also have a complimentary consultation. So, you know, our complimentary consultation, roughly about 25 to 30 minutes, somewhere around there. And we just dive a little bit deeper into the business and truly try and understand what's going on and, uh, and really trying to dive into their long-term goals, the seller's long-term goals. And, and it's just, it's a great way to see if they're ready to go. Um, you know, if they need a little bit more time and some help from a great resource like yourself um, <laughs> or, uh, or if they, uh, if they are, if they've got something great on their hands, they just have no idea. You know, it's a really good chance for, for kind of an initial powwow with everybody. Thank you so much guys for coming on the show. It was a blast. Thank awesome. you, Ryan. Thanks, Appreciate Ryan. It, Take, Take care, care man. man. My challenge to you, the listener, is that if you're an offline business, go on to Quiet Light Brokerage, FE International, or Global Wild Advisors and have conversations with these folks about the online space because I think that the ability to buy a cheaper business that can accelerate your Go to market in e commerce or online or some sort of product as business is absolutely in a place that it won't be for long. It can, you can acquire the talent and then a completely different business operational model that you wouldn't have been able to develop in the, the sheer quantity of time and investment that you could to buy it right now. And it'll increase the value of your company. But then on the flip side, if you're an online entrepreneur and you've built a sustainable business that has got some serious cash flow now. Treat it like a real business and do some of the things that we were talking about. Go around Amazon, start owning your customers, look at ways to diversify your revenue and protect that customer base. So whether it's launching white label products, getting in the manufacturing distribution or something to do what you need to do to protect that cash flow and make you more appealing to anybody because you've built something great. Now use that cash flow to really build a golden cage around what you've built. So if you have one takeaway, talk to someone in the space to get your education where it needs to be. Or if you want, you want to join one of the growth and exit planning boot camps that we're going to be launching, the virtual ones that are the three-month program, reach out to me, Ryan at GEXPcollaborative.com, and we can talk about when we're launching the first ones. And other than that, I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you next week.